Oh God in heaven, Lord, we praise you and we honor you and we glorify you. And Lord, we acknowledge today that you are the king of heaven. Lord, that you sit in heaven enthroned above the earth. That Lord, you have created the world and everything in it. Lord, that you give life and breath and everything else to the creatures that are on the earth. That Lord, you hold our lives in your very hand. And in fact, you are the king of glory. God, you are perfect. You are powerful. You are awesome and loving and gracious. Lord, you are wise and you know everything, God. You see into the deepest part of our heart. You know every thought and nothing escapes your attention, God. Oh, Lord, you even care for the little sparrow so that they don't fall to the ground apart from your will. How much more our lives are we not more valuable than many sparrows? We thank you, God, that we have the privilege of gathering in this place this morning and looking into your holy word, the Bible, that we might know and understand you better. We thank you that you have provided a way for us to be reconciled to you through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and through his precious blood. God, we thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you for Jesus, the sacrifice, the one who died to put away our sins so that, Lord, if we believe in him, we shall have everlasting life and be reconciled to you. We thank you, God, that you give the gift of faith to those who ask. And so we ask today, God, grant us faith by your Holy Spirit. Regenerate our hearts and our minds. Lord, draw us to yourself and make us like you. God, we worship you and we exalt you and we want to be like you. And we ask, Lord, that you would change us in the deepest part of our heart and make us like Jesus. We thank you for the privilege that we have uh, to gather in this place with all of your holy family. We thank you for your holy scripture that you have given to us, the Bible. We ask that you give us ears that hear and eyes that see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, with that we're going to uh, start our lesson here, and we are going to start out on page 62, which was last week's handout, and uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to finish this lesson on page 62, and then I'm going to give you a a brief overview of what we're going to be talking about next year, and um, just going to kind of stir up the pot here and... Get everybody thinking about what's really important in Christianity and uh, what is it that Christians really believe? What is the heart of the Christian faith? We're going to talk about that a little bit later here and and, uh, and um, God willing, next year we'll, we'll spend about 16 to 20 weeks going through this uh, section on the gospel or uh, the message of Jesus Christ. In getting started, though, uh, last week we were talking about the atonement because we, we had just spent like some 12 weeks going through the atonement. What does it mean that Jesus died? Why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus die? Why did he shed his blood? Why does the Bible say that God is the one who sent Jesus to die? 
uh, why would would uh, God sacrifice his son, right? We've talked about all of those things in great detail. And, um, you know, we've talked uh, about who Jesus is. We spent the first half of the year talking about the person of Jesus Christ. Who is this Jesus that died on the cross? Um, why does it matter? Who Jesus is, right? We talked about the incarnation, that he was God in the flesh, that Jesus was God, the eternal son who came from heaven and manifested himself as a man so that he could live a perfect life in our place and so that he could die as a sacrifice to put away our sins. Amen. And that is, in fact, exactly what happened by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, that this was all God's plan from before he ever created the world and how we talked about the fact that the fact that Jesus died on the cross was the most important event in all of history. That, that this is why the heavens and the earth and man and everything was created in the whole world. It was created for this central purpose. So that Jesus could die on the cross to redeem mankind from his sins. Because that's God's plan of redemption. And that is what reconciles sinful man unto God so that man can live and not die. Amen? And so we've been talking about those things at great length and in great detail. And of course, all the while, looking to the scripture to see how the Bible defines these things for us. How it uses certain biblical terms and words to describe what these things mean. And uh, so then talking about the atonement, we just looked at... What, what, what is the heart of the Christian faith? What does it mean that Jesus died on the cross and what was all of that for? So uh, now that we have gone through that body of knowledge, the body of knowledge of who is Jesus the person and what is it that he accomplished on the cross, we're going we're gonna to shift gears and, and talk about uh, the, the message of these things. So in other words, it's one thing if Jesus is who he is and did what he did. It's another thing entirely how we communicate that or what it means to us. Are you with me? And that's kind of what the gospel is. But so last week we were just kind of summing up this idea about the atonement or the work of Jesus Christ. What did he do and why does it matter and, and um, why did he do it? Those things we, we talked about. And, and so now we're just, uh, I was just trying to point uh, out this this truth that I'm I'm hoping that you grasped. I talked about it for two weeks, and that is the fact that the gospel is objective reality. The gospel is objective reality. I made this little tar- chart to try to explain that, but but basically what it means is is that Jesus and His work, okay, is our righteousness before God. So that there isn't anything in us that earns merit with God or somehow reconciles us to God. What earns merit before God is the perfect life of Jesus. And what cancels out the debt of sins that we owe to God is the death of Jesus. He died as a sacrifice in our place. He died for us who believe in him. Amen? And so, if you will, that thing is objective. It's something that's outside of us. It's not part of us. We believe in a historical fact that took place 2,000 years ago in Israel. We believe in something that is objective. It's not subject 
to me or anything about me. Okay? It's an objective reality. Jesus died for sins, and if I trust him by faith, that death can be applied to me and my sins can be covered and canceled. Amen? Jesus lived a perfect life. And God says, if I believe in him, I can receive his righteousness as my own. And that comes to me by faith, by trust and belief and reliance upon Christ and what he has done. You understand? So in that sense, it's objective. It's an objective thing that I'm looking outside of me to put my faith and my trust in. Therefore, it's not about how good of a life I live. I could live from this day forward. I could live a perfectly sinless life. Of course, I can't do that. But if I did, right, I would still have the debt of sins from my 41 years of life that I owed to God, by which if God gave me what was good and righteous and perfectly just, I should perish forever in hell. Because the wages of sin or the payment for sin is death, dying forever in hell, separated from God. Right? So the point is is that it's not by works. There isn't any kind of good works. There isn't any kind of good religion that I can do. You know, it's not about being a good Christian. That's not how we get saved. We don't get saved by being a good Christian. Right? Because... Quite frankly, there aren't any good Christians in the sense that God defines goodness. Are you with me? Now, I understand there is a sense in which we define goodness. You know, there's a lot of, we know a lot of good people. And what, basically what we mean when we say good people is people that generally have God's good characteristics in abundance, right? And the more they have of those, the better people they are. And humanly speaking and very subjectively and relatively speaking, We know good people and we know bad people, right? Bad people do bad things and good people do good things and that kind of thing. But in the sense of real, actual goodness in the sight of God, we're a million miles from God. Amen? We owe a debt we can never pay. If we were going to pay the debt of our sins, we would die forever separated from God and we would never get to the final payment for our sins because the wages of sin is death and death is eternal. And, and one violation of the law of God is worthy of eternal damnation. Are you with me? Okay. So, the gospel is objective reality. It's outside of ourself. We're putting our faith in Jesus, the man, and in what he did. What did he do? He lived a perfect life, and he died a death in our place. Amen? Okay. How many of you got that point? The gospel's objective reality. It's not subjective. It's it's outside of us. It's you with me? It's not dependent on anything that we do or say or think or add to it. It's not dependent on anything we do or say or add to it. It's dependent on what? Jesus' perfect life and Jesus' death. Are you with me? And let me tell you, he did that perfectly. Therefore, my righteousness is perfect before God because I'm trusting in Christ. Amen? Amen. Glorious. Glorious. I'm free. (laughs) Are you with me? How many of you are free? (laughs) Okay. Praise God. Okay. 
So then, since the gospel is objective reality, and Christ did what he did, he, he was who he was, and he did what he did, right? How should we respond? Now that we know these things, right? If you will, open your Bible to the book of Colossians. So, I, I just want to point out a, a few things in the book of Colossians. In the context of talking about, now that we know these things about Jesus, who he was and what he did for us, and we know that he did accomplish atonement, and that he did live a perfect life before God for us, how should we respond? What should we do? Okay, that we should we should walk in good works. In other words, here's the deal. Because Jesus died and he lived a perfect life and he's the model of virtue for us and we're trusting in him and we ascribe worth and value to him and who he is, we therefore want to be like him. We want to possess his virtue, which means that inside our heart, we're going to think about things like he thinks about things. And we're going to use our mouth to speak words that are consistent with things that he would say because inside our heart, we really have godly virtue living in there. Are you with me? And we want to use our hands to do things that Jesus would do, like loving and serving our neighbor. Amen? Not to mention loving and serving our spouse or loving and serving our family, our children, our mom, our dad, right? We want to honor our fellow man because we honor God, Jesus. Amen? You with me? So I want to just kind of show you how, now this is all through the the New Testament. In other words, here's the gospel, here's how you live in light of it, okay? Okay? Paul's letters are filled with that kind of exhortation. I mean, Romans, the first 12, uh, 11 chapters is all doctrinal, talking about the cross, the work, the faith, everything that Christ did. And then the last chapters are how you apply that knowledge. The book of Ephesians, first three chapters, is all doctrine, right? You get to chapter four, pow, no more doctrine. Everything is uh, uh, practice. How do we live out these truths that we learned, right? Book of Colossians, first two chapters, all doctrinal. It's all about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 is about the person of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 of Colossians is about the work of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 and 4 are all application. How, how, what do we do because Jesus is God? What do we do because Jesus died on the cross to cancel the debt of our sins? Are you with me? This is how Christianity is viewed in the Bible. We look at the person of Jesus, we look at the work of Jesus, and then we respond out of gratitude for who he is and what he's done. Amen? Okay, so I want to show you in the text of Scripture how that is. So follow with me. If you have your uh, book of Colossians here, um, there, there is a way to respond with our life. There's a way to behave because we have this knowledge, okay? Paul says in Galatians, he says in chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
So when Paul views his life, he says, I died with Jesus on the cross. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, Paul says. Paul says, I died. Paul died. What does he mean? He means Paul the sinner. Paul the sinner died with Jesus on the cross. This is his understanding. This is his view of his life. This is how he views his life because of Jesus. He says, if, if Jesus had to die for my sins, then I want to die to my sins. You understand? It's a mental thing that we do in our brain. If, if Jesus had to die because of sin, we don't want to commit it anymore. Are you with me? If, if Jesus had to die because of sin, I want to die to sins. That's what Paul means when he says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But what? But Christ lives in me. Because when he came to Christ, he entered into union with Christ. And Christ came to live inside of his being, inside of his heart, inside of his mind, inside of his, the essence of his nature, right? Christ lives inside Paul. And so Paul says, Paul the sinner died, and Jesus the righteous lives in me, Paul. Amen? You with me? That's how we view our Christian life, knowing these things that Christ has done. So, <clears throat> he... he um, in, in Colossians, uh, he, he begins to talk about these things. I want to show you in chapter 1, if you will, he kind of introduces um, himself. He goes through, he talks about the fact that the gospel's been preached and how he's praying for the church and the Colossian church got converted. And then right about verse, um, well, about verse 13, he starts giving us some doctrinal instruction. And he starts saying that, uh, you know, in Christ, we've been transferred from the dominion of darkness, right? And we've come into the kingdom of his beloved son. And in him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, right? Here's what Paul says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption, right? The payment for forgiveness of our sins. And here's what he says, the him, who is the him, Right? So Paul tells us, who is the him? Verses 15 through uh, 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the creator of heaven and earth. Jesus is the creator of the devil. Jesus is the creator of every angel. Jesus is the creator of all mankind and all the stars in the whole universe. You understand? That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, here's who Jesus is. He's God, very God. He's before all things. He made everything for himself, for his own purposes. Right? And then he says, verse 18, He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have what? First place in everything. So that he will be the preeminent one. Right? Why does God manifest himself in creation? So that the creation will have him in the right place. First place. 
That's why the first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I am the Lord. Amen? Amen. You with me? Okay, so here's Paul giving us this exhortation. Here's who Jesus is, right? And then he goes on. He, he starts talking about what Jesus has done. Let me just, you know, show you. He says, verse 19, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all his fullness to dwell in him. What's that? The incarnation, right? And he goes on, verse 20, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Right? Now what's he saying? Now he's shifting from, here's who Jesus is, and here's what Jesus is doing. He's reconciling all things to himself through the blood of his cross. Amen? And here Paul takes off with an exhortation about the atonement and the work of Christ, which starts here and doesn't end until he gets to the end of chapter 2. Okay? And through there, he's given us a whole discussion about what Christ has done and who the church is because of that. And, and then he be, he's going to shift, when he gets toward the end of chapter 2, he's going to shift to having this knowledge about who Christ is and what he's done. What do we do about it? Okay? And let me just show you one other little highlight where he's really kind of explaining the gospel. Um, <clears throat> He says in, uh, in verse 10, And in him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. Verse 11, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Listen. Having been buried with him in baptism. Remember what Paul said? I've been crucified with Christ. I was buried in baptism. I died to my old sinful self. Right? And he says, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You see that? Now he's explaining how that gospel is applied to me. I was circumcised by faith. In other words, I trusted in Christ and, and repented of my sins. Right? And how did I do that? By the power of God. He says, through faith in the working of God. What is that? Regeneration, being born again, right? God did this work in me. He performed this work in me, right? Then he goes on, look verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Are you with me? Right there you see expiation. Remember we talked about expiation, the removal of guilt, right? Jesus canceled out the debt of decrees which were against us. How did he do that? He nailed it to the cross. You with me? So Paul is here talking about the work of Jesus Christ. He's saying this is who you Christians are. You see, he writes a letter to the Colossians. He opens up the book. He says, you know, here's this glorious gospel by which you got saved. Let me remind you who Jesus is. And let me remind you what Jesus has done so I can tell you how to glorify you, you, him with your life. Are you with me? And that's exactly what Paul does in many of these letters. He wants to get the Christians focused back on the essential nature of the Christian faith, which is the person of Jesus Christ. 
And he wants them to be transformed in their mind by the heavenly truths of the gospel so that they can live a life that glorifies God, which is God's chief purpose in everything. Amen? God does everything that he does for the manifestation of his own glory and excellency as God, including save us, including work in us by his spirit to sanctify us so that what? So that we'll glorify him with our life. You with me? Okay, so he's got this discussion about the person of Jesus in chapter 1 and the work of Jesus in chapter 1 and chapter 2, right? Then he gets to chapter 3. Look with me. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Okay? Are you with me? Look what Paul says. He says, if you're one of these people that I talked about, who's been buried with him in baptism, and raised up with him in newness of life, Right? If then you have been raised up with him, he says, keep seeking the things that are above. Right? He tells us what he means by that. He says in verse 2, set your minds on things above. What things, Paul? Jesus, the king of glory, the one who created everything, the, the express image of the invisible God, the one who created everything by him, for him, and unto him, the one who holds all things together. Right? Set your minds on Him where Christ is seated, He says, at the right hand of God. Think about the things God thinks about. Think about the things Christ thinks about. View your world through the lens of Christ. Not through the lens of the world. That's an earthly thing. Right? Because why? Because we're citizens of heaven. He's going to go on to tell us, right? Well, He, he's, he's telling us, set your minds on things above, not on things that are of the earth, because you died. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now you're in Christ. Now you, you're in union with Jesus Christ. Don't think like an earthly creature anymore. Okay? Set your minds on things above. And now that you're thinking about these things, what things? The glorious reality of who Jesus is and the glorious reality of what he's done. Now that you're thinking about those things, how should you live your life? Now that you know who Jesus is and you know what Jesus has done, how should you respond with your actions? How should you respond with your thoughts? How should you respond with your words? Right? This is the subject of Paul's teaching. He's going to show us how to apply this knowledge to our life. Verse 5, look what he says. Therefore, therefore, see that word? What's the therefore, therefore? Amen, sister. Because of everything that's been said before, right? All these glorious things about Christ, he says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Now here's what he means, members of your earthly body. Okay? Your ears, your eyes, your mouth, your hands. You with me? Right? Your feet. All the parts of your body, he says. Consider those as dead to what? To immorality, to impurity, 
to passion, to evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Paul says because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done, we have to consider ourselves dead to sin so that we don't do it anymore. Right? Let me simplify that for you. Stop sinning. You with me? Stop sinning. Stop sinning. That's what Paul's saying. Just sum it up for you in two words. How about one word? Repent. Right? Are you with me? I'm always amazed at that uh, passage in John 5 where Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda. You recall that? We went through that with Pastor Tim. And uh, the guy gets up, pick up your pallet and go home. You know, the guy's been there for 27 years or however long, 37 years, very long time, right? Jesus heals him. Up he gets, picks up his pallet and goes home. If you read about five or eight verses later, it makes this statement. It says, a little later, Jesus saw this man in the marketplace and he said to him, stop sinning. Unless something worse may happen to you. That's my paraphrase. But that's effectively what it says. Are you with me? So here's Paul. Giving us the teaching of Jesus here in Colossians. Because Jesus is the king. And because he's done what he's done. Stop sinning. That's how we ought to respond. Amen? Not to earn merit before God. That's already been done at the cross. But because we love God and we're so thankful for what he's done for us, the last thing in the world we want to do is sin against him and offend him. Amen? Understand? The motivation for repentance is thanksgiving and gratitude and honor. The motivation for, for not sinning against God is honor. The motivation for not sinning against God is love. Because we love God. If you love God, you don't want to sin against Him. Amen? Because He hates sin. Amen? You with me? Okay. He goes on. Verse 8. He gets real personal. He starts telling us exactly what these things are. But now you also put them all aside. Anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech from your mouth. And do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And having put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free man. But Christ is all and in all. Amen. So here's what Paul says. He says, Put all that sin aside. Put it aside. Don't walk in it anymore. Don't sin anymore, Christians. That's what he's saying. You agree? It's in the black and white. Amen? What do you suppose we ought to do? Do it. (laughs) Amen. Do it. I, 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 I I can speak for myself. My greatest failure 
as a Christian is just not doing what God tells me to do. And you know what I'm saying? Uh, maybe I should clarify that. Just simply not obeying God's word. You understand? But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Amen? <clears throat> See, we, we live in the light of the gospel. Okay? But we abhor sin. It's because of sin that my Lord had to die. It's because of sin that Jesus shed his blood for me. Amen? How can I go on walking in it? Are you with me? Okay. Here Paul describes how the knowledge of the things above in verse 2 change the context in which we view our relationships to others. Right? Remember Paul said, here's who Jesus is, here's what Jesus has done, set your minds on things above, and therefore, he says, right, put aside sin. Look at verse 12 with me. I want to get real personal with you. I want you to think about the way you behave inside your home. I want you to think about the way you behave with your family. I want you to think about the way you behave with your spouse. I want you to think about the way you behave with people in the church that you fellowship with. I want you to think about the way you behave in regard with your people, your friends and, and fellow co-workers. Okay? Because this is really practical stuff. Paul's saying in light of the gospel and in light of the glorious person of Jesus, here's how we ought to respond. In verse 12 he says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, he says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And first here he's dealing with our motives. And he's telling us what, what ought to be going on inside of our thought life and inside of our heart. He says you ought to be a people of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Right? And then look what he says. He says, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. And whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Right? He goes on. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Amen? You see that? It's real practical. This cross thing is real practical. You with me? Here's what the cross means. Jesus, the Lord of glory, has to die because we sin. Now that we know that, and we value that above every other thing. We ought to stop sinning. You understand? We ought to put aside everything that's not consistent with Jesus and his person and his work. That's what Paul's saying. Right? It's a matter of how you view things, family. How you think about things. You know why you sin so much? Because your thoughts are sinful. You know, James says, rend your hearts, you sinners. You know what he's saying? He's saying, clean all that garbage out of there and start thinking right thoughts. That's what he's saying. 
He's saying, be broken over your sin. Right? Humble yourself under the Lord's mighty hand. Stop thinking such sinful things. Put on a heart of compassion. Don't be so angry with people around you. Right? This is what he's saying. He's trying to tell us how to apply these things to our life. And let me tell you, when it gets down to the nitty gritty, it's, it's how we behave. It's what kind of thing is going on inside of our heart, which is producing in us either a life that glorifies God or a life that brings shame to his name. Are you with me? And that's why in a lot of Christian circles, there's so much emphasis on behavior. You know, there's so much emphasis on law. And we'll go there. We'll go there in the future. I, I promise. I, I, I'm, I'm going to show you how this gospel applies to our daily life. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to you about the law and the gospel. And uh, <clears throat> if the Lord is willing, and I still have breath at that time. Um, <clears throat> but um, uh, this is very practical. This gospel is very practical, family. Okay? And that's why the first word of the gospel is repent. Okay? Paul says, Acts 26.20, he says, I preached that they should repent of their sins and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's gospel. What did Paul go around preaching? Repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said this in the same verse, and prove their repentance by their deeds. You with me? If you really believe in Christ and you've trusted in him, he says, prove it with the way that you act. Prove it with the way that you live. Okay? And that's a worthy response of Christ. A worthy response of what he has done is to put away our sins and to walk in his grace and in his loving kindness. Amen? And if you look at your life and you say, Preacher, I don't know how I can ever get there. Okay? Well, let me help you. Start to long for that. Let's just, let's just start with your desire first. Okay? And let's just look at Jesus and all of his beauty and his glory and his compassion and his kindness. And let's just begin to value him. I promise you, you worship Christ, you'll start becoming like him. You start ascribing worth and value to him. You start appreciating his character. You start appreciating his words. You start appreciating his heart. You start appreciating the things he's done. It's going to change you. So, you know, yeah, you can't do it. You can't do it in the flesh anyway. Right? So what do we do? Well, we, f- we fix our eyes on Jesus and on who he is and what he's done. And by beholding as in a mirror the Lord, right, we are transformed from glory to glory, right? Second Corinthians 3.18. That's what we do when we're reading the Bible. We're looking at Jesus. And we're ascribing worth and value to him. Amen? That's what we do when we, when we look at the law of God. The law of God shows us God's perfect virtue. It shows us God's perfect uh, uh, character. We look at that and we say, glorious. I want to be like that. Amen? So that's, what, that's how we apply it. That's how we apply the gospel to our life. And again, you, you, you find this all through the New Testament. Because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done, this is how we should respond. Amen?
Okay. So then, with that, I want to talk to you about what's in store uh, next year. Of course, this is our last class um, for this year. And uh, Lord willing, we're going to pick up again. It's usually the first Sunday after Labor Day. Is that right? First Sunday after Labor Day in September. And there, we're going to shift gears from talking about the, the person in the work of Jesus to talking about the gospel message, okay? And I just want to um, want to say a few things to you um, about the gospel. And I, I wrote this little statement just briefly to kind of try and explain. I'm sorry if some of this isn't, you're not used to hearing these terms and don't really know what they mean, but I, I'm going to explain them in a, in, in a way that you'll begin to understand and appreciate. Postmodernism has produced a climate. So when I talk about postmodernism, I'm talking about the American culture. Okay, It's what we call postmodern. In other words, it, it's not part of modernity anymore. The culture has made a shift from being what we call modern into being what we call postmodern. And the, the modern culture effectively existed between the very early 19th century and the mid-20th century. Just broad, broad strokes, okay? And then in the late 20th century, there began to be a whole shift into what we call postmodernism. And all it is is it's a description of the values of our culture. Okay, and and people went in 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 modernity from valuing um, things like reason and rationale and logic in into valuing uh, uh, non-logic into into valuing relativism and subjectivism and pluralism and 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 those things are just talking about in my mind I like to use a big bowl of jello. Just nothing has any backbone. It's just there isn't any truth. There isn't any reality. There isn't anything that's fixed and objective. Everything is subjective. And, you know, hey, it's just whatever you believe and whatever I believe. And, you know, what is truth? You know, truth it, truth can't be known. You know, there's all these kinds of that, that's effectively the philosophy, if you will, of postmodern culture. And there's more to it than that. And there's a lot of things that have effect on it, which we'll talk about. But just that's kind of the idea. But it has produced a climate where there is such a huge melting pot of pluralistic ideas. And pluralism, we just mean, man, everybody's got every all different kinds of thoughts. And, and the idea in postmodernism is everybody's thoughts are equally valuable. So let's just all throw them in a big pot, stir them up, and take a drink. You with me? So... <clears throat> It's a huge melting pot of pluralistic ideas about the truth and reality that the lines of demarcation, okay, look here, the line of demarcation between true Christianity and falsehood have been blurred, okay, to such a degree that it is very difficult for most Christians to discern between the two. Here's what we're saying. Postmodernism has taken this line that defines what's true Christianity and what's what's false Christianity and every other kind of false world religion. And it's blurred this line so that nobody can even tell where it is anymore. Are you with me? This is the devil's idea. You know, he wants to take the word of God, the true word of God, and he wants to just pervert it enough so that you miss the whole point and sin against God. Which is exactly what he did with Adam and Eve. Right? Hath God really said? 
You know, did God really say all those things about Jesus and the cross? Right? Let me just, you know, kind of tempt you a little bit to think about all kinds of other things except the things that God really said. You with me? This is what postmodernism is. It's just an attack on the truth. And, of course, the devil's been attacking the truth ever since the beginning. Now he's just gotten really good at it. He's had a lot of, lot of practice down through the centuries. Are you with me? Okay, so that's kind of what that is. So this is why it is imperative for Christians to be able to clearly articulate the essential elements of the Christian faith. One main reason for this is that salvation in Christ is a cognitive enterprise. In other words, in order to be saved, you must hear the message, understand it with your brain, and respond to it with your will. Are you with me? That's what I mean when I say it's a cognitive enterprise. Christianity is something that happens when you put your faith and trust in the gospel. In order to put your faith and trust in the gospel, you must understand that you're a sinner, that God is holy, you've been separated from him, and that Christ is the provision for that sin. That's the heart of the gospel message. Are you with me? And that through faith and trust in God, we can be justified before God and reconciled to him. Amen? Okay, so that's a cognitive enterprise. In other words, you've got to hear and understand the message. So what does the devil do? Well, he scrambles all those eggs so nobody can tell what they look like. He mixes them all up in a big pot so nobody can discern what they are. That's what I'm telling you has happened in postmodernism, okay? So this is why it's imperative for Christians to understand... What this true, real line of demarcation is. What does it mean to believe in Christ? What is the Christian message? Are you with me? With that being said, I want to just play these this quick little excerpt for you here. Thank you. 
Now that's postmodernism. I don't know him, but I obey him. Did you know that most Christians today we've polled over the years can't name the Ten Commandments? That's pretty astonishing, especially when considered along with the fact that many of these same believers want the government to place those commands in public schoolrooms and courthouses. Perhaps the first place for us to start is with ourselves. How about you? How well can you articulate the basic truths of the Christian faith? What's the meaning of Christ's death and atonement? What does Paul mean by the word justification? What's the difference between law and gospel? The Apostle Peter asks us to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. And we believe that this task is crucial for us to recover in this day of shallow and superficial spirituality. The other one that, that I think has to jump up. Okay. So there, I'm just talking plainly about ignorance. Those were Christians he was interviewing, by the way. And part of the point is is just that one of the things that postmodernism does, it, it, it gets us into such a big melting pot of ideas that it blurs where the lines of truth are so that we are ignorant. Okay, don't be offended by that word. It simply means we don't know. Ignorance means, I, well, I just don't know. Uh, now, you can be willingly ignorant, and if you are, then you should be offended. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? In other words, being willingly ignorant is uh, really not a good thing at all. You don't want to be willingly ignorant. You want to willingly know the truth. Amen? So, uh, uh, anyway, the point is just that in postmodernism, there's an ignorance. Well, what is there an ignorance about? Okay, well, here's the Ten Commandments. For, for one... Christians don't even know what it means to sin against God because they don't even know what sin is. You understand? You know, it's like, I kind of wonder if, you know, whatever their most relevant sins are (laughs) that God's been convicting them of lately, those are the ones they remember, you know. (laughs) I don't who knows, you know. But just the point is, it's just that there's an ignorance. Nobody knows the truth. And so they they have all, they're, they're just, you know, their sin is multiplied. Are you with me? They're ignorant of the truth. Well, more importantly, or should I say equally as importantly and uh, maybe even a little deeper, Christians don't understand the gospel because in postmodernism, especially how this has affected the Christian church, the evangelical church, we've blurred the lines of the gospel. Now we don't know what the gospel is. What is the gospel? What's the gospel message? What, what do we Christians really believe? Can we articulate that? How long have you been a Christian? Can you articulate the gospel? Well, I'm hoping that you won't sit in our church for too long without being able to give a thorough explanation of what the gospel is. Let me tell you one reason why. Family, you can't evangelize anybody if you don't know the gospel. Much less, how can you be saved if you don't know the gospel? Are you with me? Remember, it's a cognitive enterprise. You have to hear it, understand it, and you have to believe it with your will. Even though that happens by the power of God... Right? It's still a cognitive enterprise. And it still happens when we hear the message. How shall they believe if they haven't heard? Amen? Are you with me? Okay, so then we have this whole idea about what is the gospel. Now, he's, this is an amazing clip right here. He's at a Christian booksellers conference. Okay, these are people who are supposedly well-read. Okay? He's going around interviewing people. What is the gospel? Uh, was the uh, interview that our producer Shane Rosenthal did the Christian Bookstore Convention when he went to 
60 different people at the uh, convention asked them what the gospel was, and we got one correct answer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And people who have heard those interviews will say, you know, I thought you guys were just critical and judgmental until I heard that show, and then I realized how bad it is. What uh, is the gospel to you? Uh, I think the gospel to me is a message that um, can be personal to any person, um, not something that you can, not something really tangible, something that you have to find within yourself in whichever means. It's Jesus Christ living in my life every day in every situation and passing that on to everyone else. It means you you love the Lord, you love yourself, and you love other human beings. How would you define the gospel? Oh goodness, these kind of questions. This is why I ask what kind of questions. Um, what must I do to be saved? I guess accept. God and do right. Um, I know I think going to church and frequent confessions and keeping up with your belief and your religion. To me, the gospel means spreading the word. And what is the word that you spread? That he believes that he, he will deliver you from any kind of illness, any sickness, any discomfort, he will be there at a time of need. He's your all in all. Does God expect us to be absolutely perfect to get to heaven? Oh no, by no means. He just all he just the only thing he expects of us is to live right and then do His will. Does God expect us to be absolutely perfect? Uh, no, but He expects us to go ahead and walk uh, a life of Christ. But for God allow us to get into heaven, you say He doesn't expect us to be absolutely perfect or holy. So His standard of holiness does He lower that to let us in? In some kind of way, maybe so. Maybe so. What is the good news? Just learning, you know, to live more like Jesus did. And if uh, we fail to live like he did, we would go to hell. What does the word justification mean? It says <laughs> You're doing great, Shane. Oh, you're justified. I can't answer all these questions. I just know I'm born again. What does it mean to be justified? Uh, justified. In relation to what? <laughs> what does the word justification mean? Oh, you got me on that one. As far as dictionarily, I don't know. The good news is that we'll have eternity forever. What does justification mean? Justification? Well, we have to justify ourselves here on earth in order to gain that eternal life with Him. And as long as we keep following Him and keep focused with Him, we'll be there with Him. Well, R.C. Sproul said that when he was listening to that program, pulled over his car and wept. Oh. and had to recover himself before he could turn the car back on and keep driving. Who are we listening to, Sean? That's the White Horse Inn broadcast. Is that what you're asking? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so I, I, I play that clip because I don't want to be those Christians, and I don't want you to be those Christians. Amen. Okay. And I want you to see the effect that postmodernism has had on evangelical Christianity. Are you with me? Do you see that? Okay. And so when we, when we start to talk about the gospel, um, family, you must know this message and you must understand it. Okay. First, so that you can be saved. Okay. And glorify God with your life. Secondly, so that you can enjoy God.
and live in the freedom that the gospel provides. And therefore, bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. Are you with me? And then furthermore, so that you can evangelize other people and see them be saved. Okay? I, I want to submit this thing to you. We, we, us, us here, right here. Okay? We don't see that many people getting saved because of our evangelism. Let me tell you why. Because we don't clearly articulate the gospel to people. Because that is the means that God uses to save people. It's the gospel. And so as ministers of the gospel and just evangelizing people around us as we go out into our life, right, and making disciples, this is what we're doing. We're teaching people the gospel so that they can be saved. We're persuading men. Amen? Are you with me? And in order for us to do that, we have to know what it is. And when we're communicating with those people, we got to get to the point. Okay? So, you know... Yeah, the weather's good, baseball's fun, but let me tell you about the cross. You with me? That's how people get saved, okay? And we're, I'm going to spend some time next year, Lord willing, talking about that in depth and showing us how we can apply this to our life and how we can evangelize people. But first we have to know it and we have to understand it and we have to be able to articulate it without our Bible and without our Sunday school notes. <laughs> Are you with me? So I don't have any more time. I, I wanted to talk to you some more in depth. You can look at this uh, sheet and you'll see what I have in mind just in broad strokes for next year, along with the outline of the class that's down here. I am going to go through all of this stuff, especially justification. I'm going to spend a lot of time there. But, uh, but I'm also going to be talking about some of these things. And I'm going to be talking about gospel errors, like they were all putting forth, right? Every one of those was a gospel error. Are you with me? Along with other gospel errors like this. Jesus came to give you your best life now. God loves you and has a great plan for your life. Jesus died for you. Okay? I want to talk with you in depth about those things and show you how those all fall short of talking to people about the gospel. Okay? Um, And many times we have half-truths and they don't serve anybody because... We don't expound on them and get to the real issue. Are you with me? And before I end, I'm going to play one more clip for you. I made that custom from a CD I got. Uh, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll post that thing on my website under the audio button. Okay? okay? If you don't see it there, email me and say, hey, Buster, you didn't do that. <laughs> okay? Here we go. This is R.C. Sproul in one little soundbite clearly articulating the gospel. The way was for what must we do to be saved? You asked me a question that uh, Richard Miller asked you uh, a long time ago, and I'd rather listen to Jesus answer it than, uh, uh, than not answer that. But that's, that's the ultimate question. What must I do to be saved? I say, if God is holy, really holy, if he is perfectly righteous, and the righteousness he requires of his creatures is perfection. What am I going to do? I mean, the basic problem I face as a human being with God is this, and this is why people squirm, this is why I don't want to hear about God, is that God is holy and I am not. That's the worst conceivable dilemma I can have. How can an unholy creature stand for a minute in the presence of a holy creator? Well, the only 
the only way to be saved is through righteousness. Even when we talk about salvation by faith, what we mean is salvation by Christ, who is righteous. What faith does is plugs us in to the righteousness we absolutely have to have to be able to stand in the face of God. If I approach God on my own, I am naked. And the metaphor that the Bible uses with respect to Christ's righteousness is that God covers me with the cloak or the robe of the righteousness of Christ. So I either stand before God with my own righteousness, which is filthy rags, or dressed in the righteousness of Christ, which alone is sufficient. People say, what's the difference between Christianity and other religions? So I said, one thing, one thing only, atonement. I need a Savior. I need someone who makes an atonement. And not only that, someone who lived a life of absolute righteousness that can transfer that righteousness to me, to my account. That's what salvation is about. What Luther called a, a justitia alienum, an alien righteousness. I stand before God either naked in my own righteousness or clothed with somebody else's. And I say to people, if you want to stand before God on the strength of your perfection, go ahead. But it's a fool's error. You will perish before a holy God. Let's pray. Whoops. God, our Father, open our eyes to see Jesus. God, may we trust in nothing, nothing but the blood and the perfect life of Jesus. I pray, God, for all who are in the sound of my voice, that they would know this truth. God, that they would embrace it by faith, repenting of their sins and beginning to live a life filled with love and devotion for you and for Jesus, our Lord. I pray, God, that you would give us the understanding and the revelation of this glorious gospel. And Lord, may we become ministers of it. I pray that you would uh, help us to live in the freedom and the glory that you have provided for us in Christ and by your blessed Holy Spirit. Because of his holy cross, we pray. Amen.